Hello, everyone. Welcome to How We Work. This is a podcast from Work Human about the relationships, issues, and everything else that shapes how we experience work. My name is Dr. Misha Ann Martin, and I am the Senior Director of People Analytics and Research here at WorkHuman. Okay, so today we're talking about something that I think is really important. We're talking about hope today, folks, and there are several reasons that we decided to talk about hope today. The first reason is that it's spring. So spring always feels to me like a season where everything is waking up and everything is being rejuvenated. It's just kind of natural, in my opinion, to feel hopeful in spring. Everything you thought was dead (laughs) is coming to life again. The second reason is because April is National Stress Awareness Month. So it feels like a really good time to talk about this. And then plus, last but not least, WorkHuman has been doing research on stress and burnout. And what we're realizing is that a lot of you all are struggling with this. So let's talk about it. What we want to talk about today is how we can overcome those feelings of stress and burnout and the helplessness associated with that. And we want to talk about hope as the antidote. So we've got a really exciting guest this week. He is a counseling psychologist, a psychodramatist, a professor at Columbia University, And then next month, he will also be one of our featured speakers at Work Human Live in Atlanta, Dr. Dan Tamasulo. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Misha, and terrific to be here. I'm so excited. Two psychologists on a podcast. What's going to happen today? So many psychologist <laughs> jokes come to my mind. How many psychologists does it take to do a podcast? <laughs> today, it takes two. Okay. So I'd like to start out by getting to know the human that is Dr. Dan Tamasulo. So if you feel so inclined, tell me something a little fun about you and then kind of tell us about what you do. So counseling psychologist and psychodramatist. I've been in this field a while. I've never heard of a psychodramatist. I am very excited for you to tell us exactly what that means and how those two things work together. Wow. Well, a lot of different places to start. I guess the the thing I would say is that I really never had any intention of being a psychologist, but my father was an electrician, tried to get me into the electrical union and that didn't work. And then into the carpenters union and that didn't work. And then he had friends in the plumbers union. And after I took the test, they escorted me out saying he could probably fill a tub unassisted, but don't let him flush a toilet alone. So uh, <laughs> psychology became, it was the only thing that I knew, the only thing I got good grades in. And it's sort of like, uh, believe me, if I, uh, if you need a picture hung in your house, I am not your person. <laughs> no, not unless we call the emergency room first. <laughs> So yeah, psychology just seemed to be very natural along the way. And then, uh, you know, I was a a trauma expert for most of my career. And then I went through a trauma and that changed things because uh, it's one thing to feel it rather than just talk about it or help other people with it. And I realized how really thin our resources were because I had access to a lot of resources and None of them really helped. And that's when I became very, very interested in positive psychology. 
because of all the things I had uh, tried to put me out of a dark place. And, and there's nothing worse than a depressed psychologist, I can tell you that. People would be coming to me for depression, but I would be in a little bit of a cloud myself. And although I was in therapy and having supervision, when I realized we need more tools, better tools to pull us out, that's when positive psychology came on the scene for me. Nice, nice. So you're a positive psychologist, but I still want to hear about this psychodramatist angle. What does that mean exactly? Sure. It's a, uh, if you've ever heard the term group therapy, the term was coined by a person named Jacob Moreno. And so Moreno was a contemporary of Freud's back in Vienna. And at the same time, Freud and Jung were doing their things. He was developing psychodrama. And there's a, a famous encounter with Freud and Moreno, where Moreno was asked by Freud to join the psychoanalytic movement. And Moreno had this response that is sort of echoes in history what happened. He said, you put people on a couch and analyze their dreams. I put them on a stage and teach them to dream again. Wow. And that was the last time they spoke. <laughs> but if you understand group therapy, all of group therapy, all of it came from Moreno's coining the term. And he originally put psychodrama together as the first form of group therapy. Oh. And a lot of that was spiritually motivated. He had a strong spiritual impulse to put this together. But it's the idea that we can heal one another in groups. You know, there's a saying by the crowd, have we been broken by the crowd? Shall we be healed? And he really put the mechanics of that together. The difference between psychodynamic therapy and psychodrama is that in psychodrama, we put the concepts into action. Interesting. So if you've ever done a role play where you have to talk in an interview for a job or anything like that, all of that came directly from Moreno's work. When we use it as a therapeutic device, there are action methods and techniques that deepen the experience to reactivate emotions and then correct them if they're negative. The part that I've taken on in the last 10 years has been using psychodrama for the activation of positive emotions. So things like self-compassion, compassion for others, kindness, gratitude to the self, forgiveness, all those kind of things. I've used uh, deep action methods to do that. So that's a little bit of what that is. Nice. All right. So let's get into it. It sounds like your personal experience gave you a passion for helping people activate positive emotions in their life, particularly when times are tough. So let's start out by talking about passion first before we deal with the other variables. We talk about passion a lot, especially when we talk about career endeavors and we talk about it like it's a good thing. And I think it is, but you differentiate between what you call harmonious passion and obsessive passion. Can you explain the difference between those two for us? Sure. You know, passion has really come on the scene in a big way with Angela Duckworth's work on grit, mm. on perseverance, right? Because she was the one who put passion and perseverance in the same envelope. And while I think that is you know, and, and Angela is a colleague now, but I was her student. And really that idea is so powerful because the drive, the passion to succeed is often really embedded with this sense that you have agency, you can overcome mm -hmm. things, right? 
However, at the same time Angela was doing her work, Bob Valerone at the University of Montreal was delineating different types of passion. And that his work was so distinctive because he worked with the Olympians and he was trying to find out, well, who wins? You know, mm-hmm. how, how do you get there? And what he found out is that, well, you know, the number one thing you need is passion. But there's two kinds that really will get you into the winner's circle. One harmonious, meaning that how you approach your workouts, how you think about where you want to be, everything else is really super well balanced with your life. In other words, you can slam the hammer down and do incredibly hard work, but you've got an off switch. The other type is called obsessive passion. And that means you are just on. You don't have the off switch. So you can't make that natural transition back to family, back to friends, back to relaxing. And, you know, very curiously, he not only studied the Olympians, where he's won all kinds of awards, he studied the NBA, he studied top musicians, and the pattern emerges. If you have harmonious passion, you're actually going to work a little bit harder, but for a little less time than the people with obsessive passion, because they're going to work hard all the time but there's going to be a fatigue factor. Let, let me just tell you one of the things that he found. You know, he looked at the cycling team out of Canada, and the harmoniously passionate cyclists would be able to take breaks. It'd be snowing outside, and they'd say, Oh, I'm not going to do that 100 mile today. I'll do an indoor workout and I'll get to it tomorrow or the day after. But the obsessive folks got on their bike and then they got injured. So what happens is that drive pushes you so hard that you kind of lose perspective of what's the best overall approach. Interesting. So there's such a thing as persevering too much. And what you're saying is that balance is important. But I also heard you mention something that I'm really interested to hear you talk about more, and that is agency. So can you talk a little bit about agency, harmonious passion, and how that all relates to hope? Yeah, I like that. That's kind of like a bank <laughs> shot. I'm going to bounce it over here, bounce it back here. But it really does all go together. See, in the older theories of hope or original hope theory, hope was just seen as a cognitive structure. Like, in other words, this sense of agency, which is nothing more than motivation, really, and pathways and goals. So they put it together where you had to have some kind of motivation. You had to have a goal that you're working toward. And then you had to have a pathway, a way to get there. And so these are all cognitive strategies. What was completely missing and actually makes that theory rather incomplete is the sense of emotion, that there's some affect, that there's some positivity associated with it. And that's where I, like, I got fascinated with this because it's hope is the only positive emotion that requires negativity or uncertainty to be activated. And once you can fully take in what that means, it means that we need the negativity. We need the uncertainty so that hope can get the proper nutrients to make us grow. We extract from it the challenge. You know, Hercules didn't become Hercules, (laughs) you know, without the challenges, right? It's, It's this idea that the challenge awakens us. And I'm sure everybody's heard the metaphor about the butterflies and the botanist and what they were doing is they found out that something like 13% of the butterflies die when they try to get out of the cocoon. And 
So this person slit open all of them, slit open a hundred of them, and all of them died. And they all died because they didn't develop the muscles in their wings to be able to fly away and avoid the predators, right? So if you keep that idea in mind, we need the challenges and we need a framework for it. And that naturally leads into how we're going to approach a challenge. Do we see it as an opportunity or do we see it as a fait accompli that we're now stuck with this situation? We can't see our way around it. And that's when we start to talk about how do you activate a positive emotion to add to this idea of agency, our motivation, pathway, and goal. Okay. So I hear you saying that you need a goal, you need motivation, you need balance, and then you need positive emotion as well. Absolutely. Now, what happens, and you talked about the importance of challenge and seeing it as an opportunity. But what about when everything around you feels just so negative and like you can't make a difference? So I would guess that in organizations that that set of circumstances can lead to burnout. Mm -hmm. But I also remember after, you know, the George Floyd murder, personally feeling really helpless and like everything around me was so negative and I didn't have any control over that. How do you assert control and be hopeful and have agency when times are tough, either within your organization, you know, it could be workload, it could be anything else that's going on, or just within the world, like social justice or Ukraine. How do you feel hopeful under circumstances like that? Yeah, I'm glad you're asking the tough questions because that's (laughs) what's in, well, that's what's in front of us. I think it would be wrong to just skirt the, the powerful issues. And so to take a dive into that, a way to appreciate the stance that you can employ with hope is to appreciate some principles. It's when we're in a situation where we have, let me do the work thing and then balance it off. When we have responsibility without power, this is the recipe for burnout. Wow. If we are systematically confronted with a sense that we have to do something, but we don't have any power to do it, that will systematically deteriorate our motivation, our well-being, our sense of meaning and purpose. And it might chip it away slow or fast, depending on the individual, but that's the formula. We know that. So when there are very large scale incidents where you do not have power, the first thing is to challenge that thought. And there's a relatively simple way to do that. And that's simply to step back from it for just a half a moment and say, there's another way to look at this. Now, you don't have to know what that other way is. But once you give your mind an opportunity to not get fixed on what you can't do, you can start to think about what you can do. One of the things that happens when we have responsibility without power is that we move into a condition known as a threat response. We feel threatened, but also helpless. And that shuts us down. Just like your cell phone or your laptop, (laughs) if it got overheated, would shut down because it's just trying to conserve itself. It's just trying to preserve itself. It's like, I better shut down because there's no sense in me staying on or or trying to do something if nothing's going to work. But if that's true, if we're kind of like our cell phones and laptops, if when we shut down, 
What we want to do is find another way to look at this, which means where do we have power? So maybe when I look at the news about the Ukraine and I think, oh, my God, what can I do? Then I realize, oh, wait a minute, I can donate. Oh, wait a minute, I can send goods, I can send clothes. Oh, wait a minute, I can do this. I might not be able to stop the missiles, but I can do something. And that's where the empowerment comes in. And that's very powerful. It doesn't matter if it's work. And if it's social justice, it's even more important because the way that we feel disempowered by events like that, we start to realize, oh my goodness, maybe there's nothing I can do. And that's where you have to challenge that thought. There's another way to look at this. Okay, I can't do anything about it. I'm not going to change society overnight, but I can be kind to this person in this moment. I can share my resources with this person in this moment. I can extend myself in some way. That makes my reality true and real and hopeful because it's within my control. And at the end of the day, that's what hope is about, believing that you have some control of the future. Wow, that is for sure fascinating. And I do remember my process out of feeling that helpless was to figure out ways that I could make a difference And that agency really changed how I felt Mm -hmm. about the world and about myself. So when you were talking about being a psychodramatist, you talked about the power of the community. What is the role of the community in all of this, in this idea of hopefulness and positive emotions? Yeah, what a great question. A few different ways to appreciate that. And I'm going to answer that. (laughs) But I'm going to answer it in a way that sounds like a cop-out and sounds, I used to say it sounds very Californian, but I don't want to offend anybody from California. (laughs) It's it's not the New York response. How about that? Or not the Jersey (laughs) response. What I want to say is that there's a quote by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen Buddhist monk who recently passed. And he said, uh, the only way out is in. And when you think about community, you have to start with yourself. And so I'm not ignoring the question. I'm just starting in that spot saying that if you can be whole within yourself and learn how to have self-compassion and self-forgiveness, because these are the two resources that are really missing today that you know, people feel bad about what's going on, then they feel bad about themselves. If you can take some time just to treat yourself really well, self-care, self-compassion, self-forgiveness, if you can do that, it allows you to be in a state of abundance and readiness to share with others. And now you've become a beacon of light. Now you've become a person whose positivity starts to resonate with others. It kind of moves out. And one of the things about hope is that it's bi-directional. So let me just use a really simple example that I, uh, it's an assignment I give to my students. They have to pick uh, one day a week where they have to do five acts of kindness, right? And that comes from the research. There's a whole bunch of reasons why that works so well. Now, in, in particular, my day is Thursday. So my day was yesterday. Which means if you drop your book today, I, like I don't go, oh man, <laughs> I really would have loved to pick that book up for you, but my day is Thursday. <laughs> uh, you know, if you let it lie there till next week, I'll go. It, it's not about that. It's really about focusing it. But if you took 
one day a week and did five acts of kindness, something happens because kindness is one of those things where the self and the community start to intersect. If I do something kind for someone else, not only do I feel good, they're going to feel good. But the big bang for the buck here is that anybody hearing it or seeing it, witnessing it, gets just about the same feeling. In other words, their vagal tone, their oxytocin, their sense of connection and bonding really gets activated too. So the idea is that if you're in a good place and you can extend yourself to others, that starts to resonate. And then because hope is bi-directional, when you see a community that has support and nurturance and love and caring that is very genuine, you absorb that back in and that fills you up and gives you ready to move back out. It's a reciprocal process and that that becomes additive over time. I've got a lot more to say about that. I just don't know how, how, how much time we have, but that it can start either way. Either you notice it on the outside and take it in or you take it in and you bring it out. We've got time, Dan. You're dropping truth bombs here. (laughs) Really cool things for us to think about and improve our lives. So yes, please do say more. So we talk about being kind to others and how that is reciprocal and it attracts people to you. I like to say broken people do not hope relationships make. But Mm. I feel like it's a lot easier for us to show kindness to others than to show compassion to ourselves. So can you talk a little bit more about how we can be deliberate about being compassionate to ourselves and how that can potentially change and improve our lives? So again, terrific question, multi-layered, right? (laughs) So let me do what I did before, but I'll start on the other end this time, right? If you take a look at work, And we have so much data about what makes us happy at work, what makes for our well-being. We've got so much stuff on that. And really, when you shake it down, the number one thing is the people. We've known for a very long time that people would give up a 10% raise if they had a best friend at work, right? This has been pretty standard kind of stuff. And if you enjoy the people there, if you have friends there, well, all of a sudden, your motivation at work, the positive emotion that's there, that that works. So, you know, if you're not in a position where you're hiring all your friends to work with you, then the question becomes, what are the mechanics on the outside that we can employ? And I've written a little bit about this for Work Human, about the high quality connections. How do you invest in relationships that are very brief encounters with others and that you may not know? And how do you bring a sense of authenticity and genuineness and positivity to those relationships so that these brief encounters are positive in a way where you might even have to talk about difficult subjects or projects that are going on, but just the person-to-person encounter is positive, although it's brief, and has a sense of uh, genuineness to it and affirmation to it so that when you leave that encounter, that dyad with another person, the process and the relationship has integrity. This is Jane Dutton's work. She's done some really marvelous stuff in high quality connections. And this stuff helps us to keep the bond and connection at work positive. And people always ask, well, what's the bottom line on that? Well, the bottom line is If I'm with a group of people on a project and I don't have that much of a connection with them and and this, that, and I mess up, well, I might get a disappointed client or disappointed manager. 
But if these are people that I have some positive connection to, they're friends uh, that are becoming friends or good connections. If I screw up, I've let my friends down. And so what happens is my connection to what I'm doing has a much more powerful, positive outcome because we're in this team together. The team I have at Columbia is like, we have each other's back. We're connected. We feel good about each other. So when something happens where we need to work together, this is a very positive and powerful way that we move toward it. Now, the flip side of that has to do with letting yourself off the hook and taking good care of yourself. And here I'm going to do the bank shot the other way this time. And I'm <laughs> going to I'm going to include a bit of psychodrama. And I've had the good fortune of winning some awards for this work. Uh, and I'm only mentioning that in that it's a very different way. They're avant-garde awards, a very different way of doing this. But if you want to fill yourself up, the way to do that is by creating a benevolent self inside of you. So let, let me talk a little bit about that so it doesn't sound too esoteric. Lots of people have been kind to us throughout our life, right? They might be few and far between, but they might be very readily known and available. But what would happen if we took an amalgam of all those people, all those people that treated us like our best friend treats us, that, you know, have a kindness for us or a support for us? Well, they're inside of us too. They're all inside of us. And what if, what if we created an amalgamized version, like the good thing that's inside of us, that benevolent witness that's inside of us, that good part of us that we often don't have access to because we forget about it. We don't conjure it up. We don't think about it. So if you could take a moment and just think about all that that's happened with other people treating you kind and create a space inside of you to acknowledge all that. And here's where psychodrama comes in. Then I would ask you to sit down across from an empty chair and imagine that benevolent self sitting across from you. And once you do that, you move into a state of appreciation. Just bask in that for a moment before we do anything. What would it be like to sit across from your very best friend on the whole planet? What would that feel like to have an encounter with that benevolent self? If you sit there and take that in for a moment and then ask it a hard question. I might say to my benevolent self right now, it's a, you know, I have a publishing deadline, 9 a.m. on Monday. How in the world am I going to meet that? And I might ask that benevolent self, but here's the trick. Here's where psychodrama comes in. Once I ask that question, I would get up, turn around and sit in the chair and become the benevolent self. And then I would answer back and I would say, hasn't this happened to you? a thousand times before, where some of your best work comes from waiting to the last minute? Yeah, you might be putting it off, but the back of your mind is always working. You know you're going to get it done, and you know it's going to be good. You just tend to forget about that. <laughs> then I would come back to my original chair and say, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> so that you're developing an encounter with a part of you that only sees the best in you, that only sees the absolute exquisite best inside of you that we often don't integrate. So this exercise, it actually uses a technique called embodied cognition. 
See, it's what actors use when they take on a role. They become the character and then they play that role and then they think like that character. We do the same thing here. And it's something that once you get used to it, I do this three, four times a week. I make sure the door is closed and no one else is home. (laughs) Uh, But when I do it, it really becomes a way that I have a friend that's with me all the time that I could talk to when I'm a little bit stuck. And I can tell you from lots and lots of encounters, it fills you up. Wow. There's so much there. I mean, I have an empty chair across from me and I just started visualizing as you were saying that. I like the discipline of having kind of an imaginary friend who is your cheerleader and coach. That is a great tip. So as I wrap us up here, I want to make sure that our listeners have some very clear and actionable things that they can do, that they can walk away with today Mm -hmm. as tips for increasing their hopefulness. And I think you really just gave us one such strategy and approach Mm -hmm. with the positive coach imaginary best friend idea. Mm -hmm. But are there any more things that our listeners can do today and start as a practice to increase our hopefulness? Yeah, I, and again, I really appreciate the question. I'm going to do, you know, a lot of things about positive psychology and, and understanding hope. Just to put it in a timeline for you very quickly, there are some things that we do that will help us review the past differently. So something like gratitude is always about harvesting positive emotions from the past because it's always about something that's already taken place. Then there are things that we do in the present that enhance our positivity in the present. And that's really very powerful stuff because we're fully engaged with it, right? And then hope as faith and optimism and intention is that's about the future, right? So I'm going to give you three things. Ooh, <laughs> and, I love three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give you three things because I think it's really important when I teach this stuff, it's really important to think about the past, the present, and the future. So the first thing would be uh, to, when you wake up in the morning, really in that moment of reverie, (laughs) if you're like me, I used to wake up like Wally Coyote. I'm probably dating myself. I'd bounce out of bed and (laughs) run around, you know, screaming, I've got a to-do list to do. You know, it's like very first thing when you're in reverie, literally take two minutes And think about three very specific things that happened yesterday in the last 24 hours that you have gratitude for. Now, that sounds almost inane, but what happens is we typically use something known as the default network in our brain to review the day. And that doesn't really include all the positive stuff. It just kind of goes through all the functional things. But if we take a moment to look at yesterday through the lens of gratitude, What we see is a vision of yesterday that changes how we feel about it. We can't change yesterday, but we can change how we look at it. And once we do that, it elevates that sense of the past and that'll harvest positive emotions that are already there and bring them forward. So that's the first thing. Think of three things and try to do that every day. You might miss a couple of days, but that's fine. But I certainly do that every day. And that has changed my strategy for how I wake up in the morning. The second thing is to try to pick one day a week to do five acts of kindness. And the other days of the week, look for kindness happening because kindness draws you into the moment. It's very present oriented, very present oriented, because 
if I see somebody struggling with a package and I know I can do something to help them, I'm completely immersed in the moment. I'm not in the past or future. I'm right there. So acts of kindness are extremely important. And then finally, and I'll, I'll just share this. I do a lot of consulting. I have a global uh, sort of entity that I work with. And what I can tell you is this has been the number one feedback I've gotten from any business I've worked with. It doesn't matter what culture, what background. It's using the idea of micro goals to start leaning into the future with a sense of hope. One of the things that's happened during COVID is that our goals have gotten shattered. We've shattered our assumptions about what can happen. And so people usually get set back on their heels with that. But if you have micro goals, what can I get done in the next 20 minutes? Oh, I can get these three emails out in 20 minutes. You said micro goals for yourself. Well, what that does is it starts putting you into a proactive coping strategy, which is the essence of hope. Hope is about the belief that you can control the future. When you have a micro goal, you've recalibrated so that the goal that you're looking to do is right in front of you and you can achieve it. Oh, I love that. So something about the past, how you look at yesterday, the present, being kind and looking for kindness in other places, and the future, micro goals. I love that. Sometimes, you know, I'm in the process of moving right now and it all feels so overwhelming. But I get my best work done when I know I have just 30 minutes before I have to do something else. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How many boxes yeah. can I pack in 30 minutes, right? That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. the concept. Exactly. <laughs> thank you for that. All right. So to all our listeners, thank you for listening. If you want to hear more about hopefulness and what Dr. Dan has to say, you should get his book. It's called Learned Hopefulness. And the subtitle is Harnessing the Power of Positivity to Overcome Depression, Increase Motivation, and Build Unshakable Resilience. You can also hear more from Dr. Dan at Work Human Live in May. And that website is workhumanlive.com. You can see the abstract for his talk and all the other speakers that we have lined up, including yours truly. And Dr. Dan, I just want to sincerely thank you for our conversation today. I learned so very much. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Just really wonderful today. Thank you for asking <laughs> such good, multi-layered, intense, good questions. <laughs> thank you. Listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this show. For more stories, insights, and videos about how we work, follow us on all social channels. We're at WorkHuman, and also subscribe to our newsletter in the show notes. How We Work is hosted by me, Dr. Misha Ann Martin, and produced by the wonderful Mike Lovett, edited and mixed by Rob Valoy. We will see you with a new episode in a few weeks. Bye, everyone.